everybody, and welcome back to Muggerax at Movies, the show where we don't talk spec about movies, we celebrate them, which is especially true in today's episode, because today we are discussing our favorite films of the past year, our favorite films of 2018! Unlike previous years, we're not going to do individual top fives, we're doing individual top tens! And we double-checked our list to make sure there were no crossovers, so those are 20 unique films that we are mentioning and celebrating on this episode today for you folks. The 20 best films collectively that we think are the best of the best of the films we saw in 2018. Isn't that right, Wheeler GDZ? Yep, that's right. That's right. So we'll be switching off. We'll be counting down to 10 down to 1. Now, in full discretion, there was some crossover between our lists. There were three films that were shared between our lists. I have taken out two of those films from my list. We Lord has taken out one, and we've substituted in replacements. So this is not truly our un- alter top 10 films of the year's list because there were some crossover, but we wanted to have 20 individual choices. We wanted each of our lists to have distinct entries on there. But we will mention films that were shared on our list when they do come up. But without further ado, we're going to switch down from our number 10s all the way down to our number 1s. V-Lord, why don't you go first? What is your 10th favorite film of 2018? Yeah, so for this one, I chose uh, Mirai. This was uh, Mamoru Hosoda's film that came out last year, and I just really liked it. It was a surprisingly like, sweet film about siblings and family, and it was a very, like, Hosoda's always kind of had a great trend of depicting this kind of, like, familial bond, and I feel this film, he did a great job of doing this between two siblings, like this young boy and her newborn sister, and I just, uh, I just really enjoyed it. I loved a lot of the Different uh, directional quirks. They had some very beautiful animation. Overall, it was just a very fun film. I'm in definite agreement. Mirai is also on my short list for my favorite films of 2018. I thought Mirai was a great return to form for Soda. I did not care for The Boy and the Beast at all. But Mirai has such a much healthier depiction of parenthood and fatherhood and masculinity and growing up. It's much more true-to-life film, and I appreciate for that. I think it's a great step and a show of maturity for Hosoda and his thoughts on parenthood and growing up. And I'm looking forward to seeing how those thoughts continue to grow in his future films. But for my number 10, I've chosen a documentary because I've seen a lot of great documentaries last year. There are some really fascinating ones like Free Solo, and three identical strangers. Both are incredibly compelling stories. But the documentary I'm choosing for my number 10 spot here, folks, is Won't You Be My Neighbor? The Mr. Rogers documentary. Because Mr. Rogers, for many of us, was such an important figure in our childhoods. We loved watching his show, and we learned from it. And this film is a great celebration of Mr. Rogers' legacy, of the legacy of the show he created, and why that was so important for our popular culture. The lives he has affected and changed, and the way he got children's entertainment to talk about difficult topics, how he was able to break down racial divides in children's entertainment by depicting a friendship between him and his black friend on that show just so amicably and without any separation or segregation. 
And what's also great about the film is not only is this a celebration of what a great man Mr. Rogers was, but it also peels back the layers and shows that he was a human being much like the rest of us. He had his anxieties and fears and worries. He was imperfect. He had his questionable moments where he might have made the wrong decision. Like when he told Francois Clemens that he could not come out as gay because that would hurt the show and told him to keep his true identity in the closet but later admitted to him and told him that he is sorry for saying that to him and that he truly loves him, you know? So I'm paraphrasing here, but it's like a message to that effect. And it's really great, that story. And just all the stories about Mr. Rogers and the impact it's had on us. And the film just builds to just this powerful emotional climax that documentaries don't usually do. Documentaries don't usually make you teary-eyed by the end of their story. But this documentary does, and I think that's worth celebrating because of the heart and love at the center of this film, and that it was the center of Mr. Rogers' life and his show, and it's at the center of this film, too. So, Mr. Rogers, this documentary that celebrates him is just amazing. Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you watch this film? I highly encourage you to do so. But that's my number 10, and now, your number 9, B-Lord. Yeah, so my number nine was Upgrade. So Upgrade was like a cyberpunk uh, thriller film that came out in 2018, and I was just really impressed by it. Like, the way it handles its whole, like, uh, like, uh, idea of, like, uh, AI augmentations, and, like, this guy having to basically essentially go on a revenge story, but then by the end, it turns on its head in just such an interesting way that it's just, like, something that you don't really see that often, even in, like, the whole cyberpunk and genre and just sci-fi, where it's very much delving into the dangers that technology can create, but also the possibilities. It's a very kind of, like, shocking film, and a very, I feel, as we are advancing in technology, it feels very realistic in the themes as well, so I, I, I enjoyed it a lot. It's a great mystery horror film. That uses technology in an incredibly chilling way, an incredibly fascinating way. And the twists and turns of that film are just incredible. Yeah, Upgrade was definitely a great film. And my number nine is Modest Heroes. So, an anthology animated film, courtesy of Studio Ponic, with films directed by Hiromasa Yonobayashi, Yoshiki, Yuki Momose and Akihiko Yamashita. And what I liked about this anthology was it was Ponic exploring a common theme of living life in the face of debt and adversity in three very unique different stories that had very different visual execution, very different sensibilities, but they all were connected through that central team. And I just thought that each of those stories were so brilliantly told. And in the cases of two of the three, really powerfully told. Life Ain't Gonna Lose is just an incredible 15 minutes of filmmaking about a kid who has an 
life-threatening allergy to eggs and the struggles he and his mother goes through in order to keep having a normal life even in the face of the challenges having an egg allergy causes and also the anxiety that causes the fear of like one wrong mood one wrong exposure to eggs could spell debt building up a disclaimer where he accidentally eats an ice cream that has egg product in it and he has to run outside his home to find help to get him to the hospital. It's just such a powerful moment in terms of the story, but also the visual execution. This was very clearly inspired by Asao Takahata's work and his soft touch and coloring style. And it's just a beautiful art style and lends itself to really creative and powerful artistic flourishes in terms of emphasizing line bait and the flur- a flurry of lines and colors. Life Ain't Gonna Lose is just such a beautiful short film. And Invisible as well is so fascinating. The story about an invisible man who has to hold on to heavy weights in order to stay on the ground and like his struggles just to live through life. And the metaphor for, you know, this person thinks that he isn't seen by other people. He thinks that there isn't anything grounding him to this life and that he'll just like disappear. He'll just, he doesn't know where he'll go if he doesn't have something tethering him to the ground. So he's living his life afraid of that. It's just, it's, I love the visual metaphor in this film. I think that it was incredibly gripping as a story in terms of like the emotional states and also the emotional catharsis of the invisible man seeing that a baby cart is steering off out of control and saving it just in the nick of time. And the baby seeing him is just such a incredibly satisfying emotional climax. So I thought Monasteries was a great show from Studio Pana. I gave a lot of praise to Mandy, which is Flower last year, and I think that this anthology film is another great showing from them. You don't see many anthology films these days, especially not many animated anthology films, but I think Modest Heroes makes a good case for them. It was titled Volume 1 of the Studio Pomoc anthology films, so, you know, hopefully they'll make more anthology films. They'll make more films in general, because I definitely would love to see them. Yeah, I mean, I really loved Modest Heroes as well. Each one of the films was just very unique in its own way, and I, I especially loved uh, uh, Life uh, Ain't Gonna Lose. Mm-hmm. I, I loved that. I thought that one was just amazing. Most um, definitely. I, I really love to see the director of that. Uh, is it a Yoshiyuki Momose, I think? I think so. Yeah, I'd really love to see them direct a full feature film. Like, mm. I, I feel it would look beautiful. I agree. But what is your number eight, Vivor? My number eight was I Want to Eat Your Pancreas. Mmm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I Want to Eat Your Pancreas did such a great job of kind of depicting, I guess thematically, just living your life to the fullest and kind of like, I guess not, not living like you're, you can die anymore, but living, living a fulfilling life with no regrets. And I, I feel like it keeps that message very strong throughout. And I just, I think like compared to a lot, a lot of people compared to like films like A Silent Voice. And I feel yeah. that's, that's an apt comparison. I feel while A Silent Voice hits me more emotionally, I feel this film also has a very strong purpose for people who maybe are facing adversities or maybe facing health issues. And it's it's the type of films that I think really need to be made more. And I'm really glad that it exists. I agree. 
very similar teams to Modest Heroes, and we talked about it at length before on our previous podcast, but I Want to Teach Your Pancreas does have a very compelling message behind it and very compelling characters, and I was very enamored with that story, especially so after seeing the animated version. So that's another great choice. For my number eight, I'm choosing Pokemon The Power of Us. I think that the Pokemon films have been an upswing with this film and the previous film, I Choose You. But I think The Power of Us is even better than I Choose You for a sounding number of reasons. I wrote about it at length before in my written review, available on AshComic.com. But Pokemon The Power of Us is unique among the Pokemon films because not only is there no central antagonist, and not only isn't it not legendary focus, but it's truly an ensemble film. It's not really about Ash. Ash is one of the characters in this film. But really, it's about this entire group of characters who all are suffering from doubts, uh, self-confidence issues, they're not really sure of themselves, and they learn through working with each other of what they can achieve and how they don't need to be afraid of being themselves. And I think that it was just such an inspiring film about community, about how bringing people together can encourage the best in them, and how, in bringing people together, they can do remarkable things that they couldn't do on their own. And I think that's just such a relevant message, just not only in terms of, like, the a cultural climate, but in terms of, you know, the meta context of what Pokemon has become over these past 20 years, especially in a post-Pokemon Go world. People are connecting bonding over Pokemon. Pokemon has truly become the center of so many relationships. And this film is all about that. How people's relationships with Pokemon allows them to have relationships with each other and allows them to help grow as people and how important that is for them. And I thought that was just a really smart take on a Pokemon story. I thought it was just a really beautifully animated film with incredibly fascinating characters that the film was able to develop within its runtime expertly and themes that are executed flawlessly. This is, I think, by far the best Pokemon movie. Perhaps I might go that far because of just how well it succeeds and the nuances and the craft put into it. It Definitely rivals the power of one and spell the unknown at the very least as top tier Pokemon films for me. But yeah, that is definitely my number eight. I loved the power of us. I highly encourage you if you're a Pokemon fan to seek it out because these are the kind of Pokemon films I think we want more of. And there's a lot to look forward to if you're a Pokemon fan because we've got Detective Pikachu and the Mewtwo Strikes Back remake this year, but you know, I want to see more films like Power of Us more than anything. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And your number seven, Lord? My number seven is Deadpool 2, so... Oh! I mean, I mean, what's there not to say about Deadpool? <laughs> it's a fun, hilarious, just superhero action movie, and I feel like, uh, just like the first one, Deadpool 2 delivers on all fronts with its crude and weirdly sexual humor... <laughs> And, like, all the crazy action scenes that really only possible because of how ridiculous Deadpool's power is. I mean, that scene where he forms the X-Force, a group of characters that are introduced just to die in a yeah. hilariously brutal way, is freaking amazing. That is one of my favorite scenes in any movie this year. How the X-Force jumping out of that plane and all of them just dying horrible deaths is just incredible. 
But, yeah, I think that Deadpool 2 was even more clever and more funny than the first film, and I thought the first film was excellent, but Deadpool 2 was even more original, more hilarious, more ballsy, and I was absolutely smitten with it. We saw it twice in the theater. We liked it that much. And, yeah, I hope that they don't rub out Deadpool's edges for the third one, because we know there's got to be more. But under Disney's hands, I'm worried that they might try to soften it. Uh, We've got a guarantee that future films will be R-rated, but, you know, I'm still hoping. Yeah, I mean, hopefully they don't make it like Once Upon a Deadpool. Yeah, I hope they do not try and attempt PG-13 Deadpool movies. It doesn't really work. No, not at all. Well, on the flip side of superhero movies, we've got Best Picture nominees. And my next choice, my number seven, is Roma, directed by Alfonso Cuaron. Roma, I thought, was, again, just a beautifully directed film with gorgeous cinematography. Again, the use of panning shots in that movie are incredible. This one single take panning shot is just amazing and how it can explore an environment, how it can create mood and tension, especially in many pivotal scenes, but especially the scene at the climax where the family is wading into this really choppy water and the main character, she has to go and rescue the children and there's just this by lingering on this single shot, Alvon's crown creates such dread because we can see where the children are even though the characters can't. And so we're hoping in anticipation that, oh my gosh, Cleo, see them, see them, see her, rescue her. So it's just an amazing way to create tension. That's another one of the best scenes out of any movie this year. And uh, Roma is full of incredible cinematic moments like that. Like the opening shot where... They are cleaning the floor, and you can see the reflection of a plane flying through the reflection of the water on the floor. Oh, just gorgeous. I think that Roma is one of the best pieces of filmmaking this year by far. And as a period piece, as something reflecting on the history of Mexico City at this particular place in time in the 1970s, an autobiographical piece on the part of Alfonso Cuaron reflecting on his childhood, thinking about the struggles that his caretaker went through in raising them and turning uh, empathetic perspective on both her and his own mother and what they were going through and thinking about the political climate of the time and like the fear, anxiety, and dread that was encompassing their life. And was the background of their life as they, you know, were just trying to continue uh, living their own normal lives. I think that there's just so much going on in the movie that's just fascinating and beautifully done. And Roma, again, is on Netflix, easily accessible. Highly encourage you to watch it. Yeah, I really need to check out Roma. That indeed you do. But what's your number six, we lord? My number six is Sorry to Bother You. Oh. Yeah, so, I mean, as we saw with the Academy Awards, Black Klansman got uh, a lot of nominations. But I feel most of those should have went to Sorry to Bother You. Sorry to Bother You wasn't even nominated, which is a travesty. Yeah, I mean, this film covers so many different topics, like capitalism, just racism, just racial, just racial perception. It's, it's such an interesting film because it's not... 
He's not handling everything in just a straight, serious way. It kind of starts off more as a comedy of sorts and delves into these horror elements gradually. And by the end, it just really hits just like this kind of frightening realization that despite what it's depicting is becoming more fanatical, the core messaging is still something that could very much happen. This These ideas of... I don't want to, like, get into, like, actual stories from the way, but, like, actual, like, just, like... Damn, I don't... Like, the dehumanization of people in this consumer, worker, corporate climate. The emphasis over the productivity and the product more than the well-being of actual human beings and how that dehumanizes and puts people in positions of slavery in the modern age. Okay, I just horrifying. You you nailed it right there. It is a truly fascinating, engrossing, disturbing, but darkly hilarious film that is perhaps one of the best films in terms of having a well-thought-out social message that is so incredibly relevant and very pressing to reflect about in an age where we have places like Amazon that are turning us into uh, slaves of a corporate consumer mindset because... We have to work for them, and we'll have to buy for them, and we are subject to their whims and mercy of their demands for profit over the health and well-being of the people they employ. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Another film, though, that has a really prescient, well-thought-out social message is Vice. Another Oscar Best Picture contender, and of course, the story of Dick Cheney's rise to power, and how he was responsible in uh, very large parts for leading to this age of government corruption that has abated the rise of Trump. And uh, that current government climate we're in right now, that current state of our government that we're in right now, like the seeds of how, what Cheney sowed and how that has burnt such bad ramifications down the line. I mean, it is a darkly disturbing film. Like this progression of how Cheney, he just starts out as just this good-for-nothing drunkard who flunked out of college. And then he becomes a politician, and we see his rise to power, exploiting opportunities for his own uh, advantage. And throughout the film, like we see the slivers of humanity that's being tested, most notably in his relationship with his lesbian daughter, and how that ultimately breaks down at the end of the film when he betrays her by telling her sister to protest gay marriage in her campaign platform, and basically ostracizes her from the family. And it's just so heartbreaking, but it's such a chilling moment. And another amazing kind of subplot in the film is that we have this narrator who we're wondering start this film who he is and then when it's revealed it's just a jaw-droppingly disturbing and shocking moment and it leaves you feeling cold and like oh my god like the sheer lack of care for human life in the pursuit of power and wealth for this person is just horrifying. It is... Weiss is the scariest movie I saw last year, and it's not even a horror film. <laughs> I mean, in terms of it feels like a horror film, and, like, just because of how how well it depicts just the messed up mentality that 
Dick Cheney had, as well as just how disgusting just politics, specifically the conservative side that it depicts, is just was handled during those times, and a lot of it still now, in this abuse of power, it just hits you really hard, and it's very disturbing. Oh, most definitely. Man, that final scene when he's speaking directly to the audience and saying, I don't care about your criticisms. I did what was best for you to protect your families. It was my honor to serve as your vice president. It's such a chilling villain speech. He's speaking in this threatening tone, trying to guilt the audience that, you know, what he did was right and (laughs) they are wrong for casting aspersions on him. Yes, the duty disowned his own daughter. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, killed but is responsible for the deaths of millions of people. Thank you, Dick Cheney. <laughs> Thank you. We love you so much, criminal. Oh my gosh, yeah. Again, that was an amazing performance by Christian Bale. That was definitely one, the best movie villain of last year, was his Dick Cheney. <laughs> oh, that fi- again, that final scene where he's giving that speech directly to the audience. That is a great villain speech. That is just so good. Yeah, like... Wait, is Dick Cheney still alive? Yeah. I wonder what he thinks of that film. I probably didn't even watch it. <laughs> <laughs> Live reaction of Dick Cheney watching Fox. <laughs> anyway, we're down to our top fives. So, what is your number five, Lord? My number five is Avengers Infinity War. Oh, ho! Um, I mean, this was just a grand spectacle. Like, we've been building up for this for years, and it actually delivered. Somehow, Infinity War worked. <laughs> After all, like, the spectacle of, oh, how are they going to get all these Infinity Stones in there? How is this all going to make sense? How is this not going to be a complete mess? It all work together. We have, like, three different plot lines going on, but they all kind of cohesively work, and yeah, there's frustrating moments, like, Star-Lord just being a complete idiot, and <laughs> not, like, just driving into his emotions to the point of, like, screwing over everyone. But understandably, he yes, get understandably, worked up over Gamora. Yeah, so it all really works, and they even made Thor likable! <laughs> they made <laughs> Thor likable! It's definitely the best that Tor's ever been in the movie. He just needed to be surrounded by Rocket Raccoon and Groot. Yeah, like, that's some serious props. Like, the only other thing you could really do is actually make Iron Man likable, but now that that would never happen. (laughs) Iron Man's a piece of shit. Well, hopefully he'll die. Yeah, please please just kill Iron Man. He's a waste (laughs) of space. We don't need him. Yeah, Avengers Infinity War was truly an event of a film. They really pulled it off. They did what no one could have thought possible ten years ago. And it was really fun seeing all these characters together. Thanos was a really fascinating villain. And that ending was truly, you know, I left the theater like cold. Like emotionally devastated, you know, because it's just such a haunting ending. And such a tragic loss. That even though you know, we know that everything's going to be fine. Like, that has no consequence in this universe. Loki, even Loki is going to get brought back to life, I'm sure. <laughs> Tom but, Holland keeps tweeting about the next Spider-Man film. Yeah. You know, you know everything's going to be fine for these characters. But just in the moment, in the context of the story, like, 
it's truly a devastating moment in terms of like you're building up to this victory and you're clinging on to the sense of host star the entire film that the heroes will prevail but the heroes lose big time and it has big consequences and then we get uh, Thanos sitting in his garden smiling and what a final moment what a cap to that film yeah I mean Avengers Infinity War they really did something special with it I would agree but my number five is my favorite of the Oscar Best Picture contenders, the favorite. I gushed about this film a lot in our Oscars podcast, but again, this film had the two best performances I saw in any movie last year with Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz's characters. And it was the most interesting, fascinating story of any of the best picture contenders but just out of any film in general i just found it incredibly gripping this political mind game between rachel vice as character and uh, emma stone's character as they were trying to curry the favor of the queen and how they backstab and betray the other especially abigail and this old character how what she does to the baroness and how she poisons her, she just completely destroys her relationship with the queen and exiles her. And just like how complete her victory is, at least she thinks, but then at the end of the film, you get this realization that she has worked her way back up into a noble lifestyle. But in terms of her relationship with the queen... She is not at the top. The queen still has the power. And to the queen, her life has about as much value. In fact, it has less value than the rabbits that she keeps as her pets. And that's just such a big power move that the queen pulls at the end of the movie. And it's just such a chilling final scene. That's like, this person's rose to power, but did she truly win? Is she truly in a better place than she was before? Because now she's at the mercy of the queen and her whims. But also, uh, what's great about the film is just, again, I thought that it was a really nice display of, you know, a queer, a love triangle, I thought. I thought, man, I really felt that the Queen and Sarah, Rachel Weisz's character, I really felt that they did love each other from the bottom of their hearts. But, you know, they were playing games with each other, and the games went too far, and that led to Sarah's exile, and the Queen losing trust to her, and just becoming this emotionally destroyed shell of a person. And she was already kind of a ch- child to begin with, but... Now, by by the end of the film, she's, like, completely lost the person who is reining her in and, like, helping her guide her to make smart decisions. And now, who knows what could happen. So, it's like, that's a really interesting, fascinating take. And I really, really found this story completely fascinating. Again, the performances were just incredible. I love The Favorite. It was one of my favorite films of last year, and I think it definitely earns its spot as my number five. Now, what about you, Elor? What's your number four? So my number four technically came out in 2017, but it didn't come out in the U.S. until 2018, so I'm counting it anyways. Mm-hmm. It is The Night is Short, Walk on Girl, one of Masaki Yuasa's, uh 
recent feature films. And this film is just plain out insanity. <laughs> and from animation to narrative, it jumps all over the place where you have like uh the main the main heroine going around trying to get drunk at all these different like venues while uh the main lead is trying to like follow her around <laughs> to like, go on a date with her. And it just gets so crazy by the end you like you're having like this weird theatrical play like motif going around and <laughs> so they start breaking out in song and it's like so funny. Yeah, it's just a ton of fun. It's just like a great like slew of everything Yuasa is capable of as a director in just into one like foundational package. It's it's just so good. I I love it so much. I agree. I count that film as a 2017 film, but if you remember, I ranked Yuasa's other 2017 film, Blue or the Wall, in my top five last year, and I would put Night is Short Walking Girl right alongside it. I thought it was an incredibly charming, incredibly great exploration of relationships, what it means to be in a relationship, what it means to admire and love someone that had such clever visuals and such creative direction and and visual metaphor and I was very smitten with it and again if you are a Yuasa fan this is one of his finest works so you definitely gotta seek it out yeah for sure now my number four is something a lot less whimsical or at least a lot less lighthearted, and that's Tully Tully was a film that completely surprised me because I didn't expect it to resonate with me as much as it did. But I really have continued to think about it months after I've seen it. And I do think that Tully was, man, a very powerful film. It's just a great exploration of this mother who is, like, struggling to take care of her kids, struggling with the tribulations of motherhood, and she's not getting enough support from her husband. And she is dealing with all sorts of anxieties about being a good mother. She has another child on the way, and she hires a nanny because it becomes too much for her to manage all her children by herself. And the nanny helps her, you know, manage her home a lot better and allows her to start to relax and have fun and get in touch with her old self again. And that's where the twist of the movie comes in, and I don't want to spoil it, but the way it explores the psyche of this character and really shines a spotlight on the struggles of motherhood and explores what it means to become a parent and what you have to give up of your old self and your childlike self in order to become that and what it also means to you know just grow up and leave behind that time in your life where you were like probably your most free and you, you see yourselves as that ideal time in your life your best self and what it means to like think on that and then realize that you can still be your best self in the moment i think that there is a lot to love in that story, and it is a dark story in terms of where it leads to the conclusion, but ultimately it has an optimistic ending that things will improve for this character and her mental health and her self-perception of herself. So I thought Telly was a very compelling film and one of the most fascinating of the films I saw last year, and yeah, that's definitely my favorite live-action film of last year, and... It might not have been obvious, but this year my list is actually an even split between live-action films and animated films. Yes! So, a very stark contrast from last year where my top five was only animated films. This year, my top ten is five live-action films and five animated films. But for now, we're all the way through our, my live-action films, and now I only have 
animated films left on my top three. Though, if uh, Wee Lord did not have shared some other films on his list that I would have had on my list, my top five would have been all animated films. But we'll get to those when we'll get to those. Wee Lord, we're now on our top three, so what is your number three? My number three is Creed 2. Ho-ho! So, I had not seen the first Creed film until this year. Me neither. And, uh... Well, technically last year. Yeah, last year, geez. And yeah, I was really impressed by it. So when Creed 2 came out, I'm like, damn, I, I need to see this, like, <laughs> ASAP. And yeah, I was in love with it. Like, I, I am a very big fan of fictional boxing after Ashita no Joe. <laughs> so Creed kind of fits, I guess, like, fills that void in a, in a way. And I just really love how much of a character-focused film this is. It very much focuses on Adonis' journey of what he wants to be as a boxer, what him paving out his own identity beyond just his father. And despite it like being promoted as a revenge story, at the end of the day, it's not a revenge story. It's about him learning about who he is and the familial connections that he currently has, his, his relationship with Rocky, and Rocky coming to terms with trying to build his relationship back with his own family. And I just find that very interesting. It went in direction, well, instead of just, like, being like, oh, here's the next big baddie of the week type thing, it really decided to go in a way that develops these characters, and, like, it kind of gives a good capping off to Adonis's character arc. And I'm I'm sure we might get a Creed 3 in the future, but really, if if this was the only Creed film we'd get for the rest of eternity, this would be a great send-off. I think it would be a great send-off for a Rocky franchise. It's so complete in terms of its emotional narrative arcs that I don't even want to see a third one. But, yeah, Creed 2 was an incredible sequel, an incredible celebration of the Rocky legacy that really takes a look at it and also takes a look at its new characters and shows that it's time to let the old grudges die out. And Creed finds something new to fight for. And he finds, you know, more emotional completeness in his journey to fight to be the person he wants to be and escape the shadow of his father and his legacy. And now we're down to my number three. My number three is Kase-san and Morning Glories. I had not read the manga for this, so I went into this just knowing that it was very critically acclaimed and people were in love with it, and I came out in love with it as well. It's just such a beautifully made, touching queer love story between these two girls and navigating their relationship and what it means to love someone and the emotional bond between them. And I was just enamored with it for that entire hour as they really learn to uh, navigate their relationship and ultimately come to the conclusion that they want to be with each other. And that makes them happy. It's so rare to see romance stories where that focus on characters actually dating and like the trials and tribulations they have during a relationship. And I like that this film was just focused on that. It's a series of four vignettes kind of showing them in different situations as they're dating and, you know, dealing with like the inevitable worry of will they separate once they head off to different colleges in the future. And I was really invested in it. It was such a great film about just this great love story between these girls. And it hit the audience. We saw it with an anime in 
as well. There is a particularly memorable audience question, you know, about... I was so moved at this film because there just isn't enough films that are about queer girls uh, and their relationships like this. And, you know, what was your thought process behind making this film? Why did you make this film? And the director was basically like, yeah, we believe it's important to uh, share these stories about love and love between, you know, different kinds of people. And, yeah, I think that's... I, go, I think that's great that they got supported. For me, it definitely left a huge impact emotionally. And yeah, that's why it's my number three film. It's beautifully made and incredibly compelling and enduring. Hmm, yeah, I definitely agree. I enjoyed Akasu-san as well. I definitely need to seek out the manga one of these days. And I hope that a DVD Blu-ray release is imminent because this is definitely a film I want to watch again. Oh yeah, for sure. And your number two, Lord. My number two is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Now this is a film that would have been on mine too, because, yeah, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is one of the best films of last year. Like, by far. Not just even animated, just best films of last year. So this would have been my list, but, Lord, take it away why Spider-Verse is so great. Yeah, so this film, I'm, I'm gonna be honest, when it was first announced, I was wary. Like, Sony's right. track record with <laughs> Spider-Man, not... Very good. Uh, no. But they threw this one out of the park. It's a Spider-Man film like we've never really seen before. It focuses on a lot of topics, death, family, and just like really learning to become a hero in the right way. Not just like an origin story, but a proper understanding what a hero is. Yeah, and the message that everyone can be a hero. You can be a hero. This can be your story. Yeah, and I feel like in an industry where we've kind of, like, fallen into, like, the Marvel formula, this breaks away from that a lot. Like, the, I guess the MCU formula, to be specific. It's a film that I feel, if Spider-Man was completely under Disney, we wouldn't have gotten something like this. And it kind of makes me happy in a way that Sony still has the Spider-Man license. But yeah, I guess in terms of the actual content of the film, the animation, gorgeous, the color aesthetic, the whole comic book look they go for. Beautifully done. It's just all fantastic. And man, I, I can't wait for all the spin-offs they're probably going to do of this. I mean, oh yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I, I just love this so much. Oh yeah, like Sony took a risk with this project and it's a risk that paid off because it looks like no other animated film out there. It is just a gorgeous aesthetic. It is so perfectly comic book and it is just an amazing ensemble film with all these creative characters all rendered in different styles and all characters I want to see more of. I want to see individual films of all these characters and it's just amazing the story they're able to create with Miles Morales and him really coming into his own and taking up the mantle of Spider-Man and embracing that. And I just found that really compelling as I did this relationship with Peter B. Parker and him, you know, being kind of a washed up Spider-Man who is kind of afraid to take risks anymore, like him reconnecting with the hero he's always been but kind of fallen out of being after having fallen on hard times. And that was just a great, compelling, central relationship. And yeah, Spider-Verse is a film that just encapsulates and is bursting with creativity. And is a film that, man, as an animator, as someone who loves animation, that film 
is just a joy, just a spark of inspiration and creativity and aspiration. I think it's going to encourage and inspire so many artists in the future. It is a new benchmark for incredibly well-made animated productions, and I think that it is going to be a hard act to follow, but I think that it has raised the bar so high that now everyone is going to want to meet the challenge that it's set up. So yeah, Spider-Verse is truly a phenomenal film. Yeah, for sure. But speaking of films that have such immaculate productions, my number two is Liz and the Bluebird, directed by... One of the greatest directors working in anime right now, Naoko Yamada. I have not seen any of Sound Euphonium besides the first episode years ago. I went into this without any knowledge of Sound Euphonium. But that doesn't matter. You don't need to know Sound Euphonium to know this movie. Because, again, it's just such a beautifully made story. It looks gorgeous. But also the way that Yamada is, directs the film and how she captures the subtleties of each character's emotions and their feelings through body language, through careful placement of the camera. Again, Yamada knows how to focus on body language of legs to convey so much emotion in such a masterful way. Like, it's amazing how she's able to use her fetish in such an artistic <laughs> triumphant way <laughs> it really is though it really is like she is a great people watcher because she knows the nuances of human human emotions and how people behave how they move their body when they're feeling a certain way and she's able to depict that just masterfully in this film and again it's another great story about friendship and love between these two characters nozomi and Mizore, and you really f feel like even though it's a supposedly low-stakes affair, right? It's just these girls' friendship. But it feels so important. It feels... It's one of the most high-stakes relationships and conflicts out of any film this year because of how important these characters are to each other and how, like, important their friendship and dramatic the rift that is growing between them and the conflict that needs to be resolved between them is becoming. And... Yeah, I think I was completely entranced and enamored by the movie, how it played with this storybook, story of Liz and the Bluebird and illustrated that, how it depicted music and how it depicted, like, characters' emotions and the subtleties and just some of the most brilliant character acting out of any animated film I've seen. Character acting that rivals live-action performances for sure. Like, this is an incredible production incredible feat of animation in its own right alongside Spider-Verse. So Liz and Bluebird is just an incredible film that I want to keep revisiting again and again and my number two favorite film last year. Yeah, I deeply respect Liz and Bluebird, especially its use of music is just, just amazing. Like, as someone like, who's musically trained, like, you can tell when they're making mistakes in the music. You can yeah. tell how like their own playing is affecting them and it's just such a great uh, eye for detail. There's, there's just so many subtleties in how it's handled. It's just so wonderfully done. The attention and the detail, the attention to life in that film is so beautiful. And again, 
that's another bar that Naoko Yamada keeps raising with her films that I hope more animators, more directors try to match. But yeah, beautiful film. But with all the praise you've shown to Spider-Verse and Liz and the Blueboard, those aren't even our favorite films of the year. So why don't we get down to it? Vilor, why don't you tell us what your favorite film of 2018 was? Your number one. Yeah, so my number one film of 2018 is one that came out pretty much at the end of the year in Japan, and that is Dragon Ball Super Broly. Oh-ho! Yeah, so this film, it's just goddamn amazing. <laughs> it's it's beautiful. Anima- the animation is to die for. It has some of the craziest action sequences ever in Dragon Ball. It is by far the best Dragon Ball has ever looked. Honestly, this is what, when you're reading the manga for Dragon Ball Z, or the most action-focused parts of Dragon Ball, this is how you're really imagining it. These high-octane fights going at the speed of light, breaking through dimensions. It's it's just all wonderfully done, all fluidly done. And the best part of all, they made Broly a good character! They did the impossible, for sure. They made Broly into one of the most compelling and human characters in the Dragon Ball franchise. Yeah, and it's so great to see. They just made so many great touches with this film. Even the Dragon Ball Minus portion, I know a lot of people were mixed in Dragon Minus. I felt that they handled it way better here than the original Toriyama chapter. And I feel everything just cohesively worked together very well. The introduction of Chi-Lai was also very good. I, I I thought she was a very nice addition. I hope we see her more in the Dragon Ball franchise, alongside Broly as well. Yeah. I never thought I'd want more Broly of all things, <laughs> but here we are. And yeah, this was just such a great film, and I'm really happy it was so successful in the box office. I and am, too. It's a good sign for Dragon Ball's future. And yeah. Yeah. This is the direction, honestly, Dragon Ball Go, and in terms of its visual production, how it looks, like, character designs by Naoshi Shikandani are incredible. The animators are able to have so much fun with them. It was a treat to see. It really puts you into the action, like you said, V-Lord. And I won't delve too much into my thoughts on this film, because I've already expanded on them before on Manga Mavericks, on my review, and we will be talking about it in a podcast vid vix in the future as well. In fact, we love this film so much, and we're seeing it this Literally again after this recording. Yup, it's so good. It truly is. It is an absolute joy to watch as a Dragon Ball fan. I think that I'm confident now in saying that it is the best Dragon Ball film made to date. And I really think that it's a promising sign forward for the Dragon Ball franchise in terms of its aesthetic quality, its animation, its production. And even the storytelling, I think. It just leaves so much promise and potential. Also, that soundtrack. Oh, that soundtrack is amazing. Go, Broly, go, 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 Shita, go, Shita, go, Broly, go, Broly, go, Shita, go, Shita. Ah, I love it so much. But now it's all down to my number one. And this is a film that would have been on Relords list too, and except I told him, no, this is my number one, don't mention it for me. And so without further ado, the number one film, for as much praise as I've given all the other films I've talked about, this film is the one that hit me most emotionally, that mesmerized me the most, that made me feel the most joy and emotional catharsis. This film is my favorite of 2018, and that film is Machia. 
when the promised flower blooms. The first directorial feature by Mario Kata, and I think she knocked it out of the park because this film truly moved me in just a deeply resonant way. It's exploration of motherhood, mortality, growing up, and loss and letting go, and also family at the center of it. Stories about family are always really powerful to me. That's a value that I hold dear to my heart. And Makia, the central relationship of Makia between the main character and her son, and the central conflict of her son outgrowing her mother and needing to leave her behind, but also just how much she means to him and how much he means to her, and how their lives intertwine, and, and how they are irrevocably changed because they've come into each other's lives, and also the background plot of it, of letting the past to go, looking forward into the future, living for the future, and all of those themes come together so beautifully, and just the most emotionally powerful scene out of any film in the year for me is definitely when Makia is leaving Ariel behind at the end of the film. And Ariel, she tells him, you don't have to call me mom anymore, and he calls her mom anyway. And like, thank you for raising me and loving me. It's just, oh my gosh. It's a tear-jerking moment. I've seen this film more times than any other film that came out in 2018. And I've cried every time. Like, it is still as power for me every time I watch it. I think it'll always still have power for me. I think that it has earned a place as one of my favorite films of all time, with how many times I've seen it and how much I keep getting out of it. There's so much attention to detail in this film as well, just like in Lies in the Blue Bird, to how characters emote, how actual human bodies react when they're feeling certain emotions, to just background details in scenes that give the world just so much life. It's a beautifully made movie. It's an excellently crafted film, and it is so emotionally powerful and pointed for me. And I truly, truly adore it. And yes, so I think I can't say anything more than that, than just say that it is just the most emotionally powerful piece of entertainment, of filmmaking that I saw last year. So Machia, When the Power of Spiral Blooms, is my favorite film of 2018. And with that, we have concluded our Best Movies of 2018 podcast. Yay! Woo! For the record... Dragon Ball Super Broly and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse would have also been in my top five. And uh, Mirai would have made it into my top ten as well. If I didn't exclude them just so Wheelord could talk about them instead. Because, you know, I needed to have Machia. But I, I was comfortable <laughs> enough letting Wheelord have the other ones. But, yeah. So, if you have not seen any of these movies, hey, here are 20 films from last year. We highly recommend you check out. Because I think... In our opinion, these are the best of the best, and you can trust us, because we see lots of movies. We see pretty much everything that comes out, especially stuff that's good. So, yeah, take it from us that these are the 20 films that if you have the same appreciation for film as we do, especially if you have an appreciation for great animated films and great uh, pieces of generally bold filmmaking, uh, definitely check out these films. 
these are the best of the best in our opinion, and I'm looking forward to seeing what 2019 has to offer. I hope it's as equally a good year, because 2018 in film, I thought, was an amazing year. Yeah, I, I agree. Mm-hmm. But there's so much to look forward to in future episodes of Ad Movies in terms of new films that we'll be going out and seeing, and I'm looking forward to sharing our thoughts with you when we do see those films. But until those occasions, until the next time, VLORGTZ, where can the good people find you? The people can find me on Twitter at VLORGTZ, where I'm usually talking about whatever I'm up to, whether it's reading manga, watching anime, or just regular life stuff. Um, aside from that, you can find me on all-comic.com, Writing manga reviews, uh, weekly reviews of Hinomanu Sumo, Actage, and Demon Slayer Kimetsu no Yaiba, as well as probably a few other reviews here and there, depending on when I have time. And yeah, that's basically about it. And you can find me at LumRomiyasha on Twitter at Amateur Revelation, Anilis, wherever there's a LumRomiyasha, that's where you can find me. You can also read my reviews on all-comic.com. I write anime movie reviews, I've got reviews up for Dragon Ball Super Broly, and Pokemon The Power of Us, and I Want to Eat Your Pancreas, a lot of the films that we covered on this podcast today. And I will definitely have more reviews up for all the upcoming anime theatrical releases in the United States, as well as manga reviews. So you can look forward to those on all-comic.com. But as for the show, you can also find Manga Maverick at all-comic.com. That's where we post our podcasts up first. But we are also on Apple Podcasts slash iTunes. Heck, for any podcast app listening device you can think of, that's where we're on. And you can leave us a rating review on there. It, it helps us get more visibility in the algorithms, helps us reach more audiences, really helps us grow the show. You can also follow us for updates on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks, on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com. You can also find our content on YouTube. Our YouTube channel is youtube.c slash mavericks. Just search for the channel name and search bar, you'll find it. You can definitely subscribe to us and also watch and like our videos on there. That also helps us grow. You can also contact us at mavericks at gmail.com or talk to us by joining our Discord. Uh, the Manga Maverick Discord's link is in the description. And if you want to help us see more movies and buy more manga to help us do the show, you can support our Kofi pages. My Kofi is Kofi slash Lamamayasha, and any support you can give will really help pay for movie tickets and manga to discuss on the show. But that about does it for this episode of Manga Mavericks at Movies, and we will see you in the next one. And here's hoping for another great year of film in 2019. And scene!